many places Around this wide world it does roam But the mountains, lakes, and rivers of Idaho That's where beauty calls her home Alright Drew, how, how, how do you feel right now? Do you feel relaxed? Uh, yes. Do you feel comfortable? Yes. Do you feel like this shouldn't be the introduction for the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Welcome to Old Spiral Podcast. My name is Brian Grimm. And what he said, it's all the same. And Drew's sitting here. And uh, this week's a little bit different. Uh, We don't have our suits and ties on, uh, which you can't see every week. We're actually wearing suits and ties. Mine's actually more of like a sporting suit. One of those ones that the old English guys wore when they would hunt the foxes. Well, sure. Mine's plaid, but it's a different fit. It's a tweed. Yeah. But today, you know, I got my sweatpants on. Uh, that's actually a lie. Uh-huh. And we're just going to do kind of a, um, just, we're just going to do a little fun episode for you. Um, kind of going off our last episode. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, some of the firsts of Lewis and Idaho, referenced, as Brian mentioned, from our last episode with Stephen Branting um, out of his book. We've had some fun perusing that and checking it out, um, and we've sort of compiled a list of our favorites. What did we come up with, 10? Yes, 10 we, we, we did 10 of our favorites <clears throat> because, as uh, Stephen Branting said, he had over 200. Yeah. yeah. And these were and, – and, and we, we got the book – we supported uh, Mr. Branting, as Drew and I know him as, uh, and we looked through, and there was a lot. There's a lot in there. A lot of interesting firsts. Mm-hmm. Some were very interesting. Some were a bit of a stretch, but still cool. <laughs> Nonetheless, Idaho's a great place, and Lewiston more specifically. Absolutely. So let's get into our list. Uh, We're going in chronological order here. Yeah, and that puts us at 1862 with the first, or 1861-62. The records back then, I'm sure, get a little bit foggy. Um, This is the first, Idaho's first police department. Right. And at that time, Technically, Idaho and Lewiston wasn't supposed to be like a township. It was part of the territory of Idaho, right? Yeah, and I heard that extended all the way into Montana. Yeah. Yeah, and what happened was um, the police department was formed to basically protect property. Oh, wow. Imagine that. Yeah, Uh, uh, because they had set up all these structures, right? So what was the rule? They couldn't have permanent settlement. Yeah, so in accordance with the treaty with the Nez Perce of 1855, there was not allowed to be permanent settlements in the city of Lewiston. There wasn't supposed to be a city. So to get around that, they built these little sort of shanty towns, it sounded like, out of canvas tents. There are all these communities that they could have that because, you know, canvas tent isn't necessarily permanent. But, right. Uh, loopholes, loopholes, right. loopholes. But nonetheless, um, they were trying to keep this like township together, and in order to protect it, they started a police force. And what was the name of the, the first police officer in Lewiston? It was Edward Everett. Yeah, and that was according to the Walla Walla spokesman in a newspaper. Um, he, he was, uh, appointed the first, I believe, police officer or sheriff, one of the two, in, in any case, um, he was met on 
What was that date? It was 1861, I believe, yeah. where A.J. Kane, who was representing the the Nez Perce at the time, was like, look, these guys, they're squatters. They're not supposed to be here. They're trying to set up a town. They're putting up these canvas tents, which, by the way, was almost the ruin of the town because they had a really bad winter. And I don't know if uh, some you can have you can have a nice fire in a canvas tent. Hunters do it all the time. Right. Um, and it's it, sorry. It's comfortable day today you know, if you hear some claws on the ground that's scout uh, she's in here with us she wanted to be on she begged with me she said, come on let me be on the podcast scout's actually been in on a number of episodes i think she 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 makes some appearances so she does. Uh, and then my family got home so you might hear elliot screaming in the background <laughs> um but anyway, yes, AJ Kane, uh, he he made a, a fluff about it and then i think yeah. you were t- going to talk was about the impetus um, for like hey you guys got to stop and then as a result, they made that police force, and then it further escalated to March 30th of 1865. Um, the Lewiston Territory was, or the, the township of Lewiston was contacted by the Territorial Secretary Clinton DeWitt Smith and a detachment of troops from Fort Lapway. They were saying, hey, if you don't stop, we're going to come take the seal. We're going to shut this whole thing down. And they did. Yeah. Well, but they... They they uh, they did shut it down because I think what happened was the couple Lewistonians of the first the first of their kind they took all those documents and they like went across the river to yeah. Washington. They're like, haha, you can't touch us now. Right, because We're they said there's no jurisdiction. But I, I think they basically shut them down in terms of their whatever little status for the for the time being. But in any case. Yes, our that first was... first was the first of firsts, and uh, I mean it was right right when uh, Lewiston was being born. Yes, yeah, which uh, <clears throat> along with other country or uh, what is it states and counties, a uh, little bit of uh, turmoil. Not yeah. always the easiest thing to up and try to sneak into land that's not quite yours. <laughs> Right. Yet, but uh, I will quit tiptoeing around that topic, and we can just move on to our second first, uh, which would have happened. Um, we've talked about this one actually in the past because this is 1862. This is the Wise Gerber Brewery, which was the first brewery in Idaho. Right. Yeah, and so Wise Gerbers, we've we've, we've covered this before, but the, they came over from Wachterbach, Germany, and I think that's how you would pronounce it. I'm yeah, and the brothers were Ernst, John, and Christ, and they they moved over to Lewis or to Idaho. Let's see, in the 1840s. Oh wow! Um, they first settled in West Virginia. Okay, and then later, but okay, Ernst, so they all settled in West Virginia, and then Ernst moved here first. Correct, and then his brother. John would soon follow, and then finally Christ would come out. And they tried their hands at a few things. Cheese making, I mm-hmm. think, being butchers, but beers ultimately, as the book says, what would be their claim to fame and fortune. Yeah, which is uh, right up my alley, I would say. Right. Um, so Ernst, he, he got up, and I think he ended up just, they kept it in the family. He, he, he grew up. Didn't really want to do beer anymore and sold it to his brothers. Is that how it went? Yeah, and then shortly after he died. And then... 1890. Yeah. And then no. after John owned it... John died in 1890. Yeah. So, let's see. Ernst died... 
Before that. <laughs> so <laughs> He died before that. John died soon after. And then basically er, er, Christ inherited the, the brewery at that point. Yeah. And, and he, when Ernst started it, it was the California Brewing, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And for whatever reason, they changed it at that time. Yeah, it wasn't it. clear. Um, and Christ really kind of made it what it is, I think. He also added some stuff to the brewery, including an ice ice making facility. He had a 10-ton ice maker at one point. Um, yeah. And beer back in the day, I mean, there was no refrigeration. It was it was warm. Right. A little warm. And it wasn't uncommon for most little towns and cities to have their own little breweries. Yeah, it's hard to ship it. it the shelf life's not as good as it is today. Right. The beers weren't as hoppy. I mean, I'm sure there were still some IPAs, but these are German boys coming over brewing German beer, and mm-hmm. typically those aren't super hoppy, so... So will that, will that uh, go bad quickly, then, that type of beer... It's if mostly it, if it's like refrigerated. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, you're going to get uh, lactobacillus bacteria coming in, making it taste kind of sour, which mm. isn't bad. You can have sour beers. Um, that's kind of how the IPA was created was they were shipping beers long distances, so they mm. had to maintain the shelf life, and hops have an antimicrobial uh, property. Right. So you load it with hops, you get that nice hoppy hipstery IPA flavor. Uh, you also increase the shelf life quite a bit. You you also would, um, typically for the IPAs you'd bump up the alcohol content from around three or four to maybe five to seven. Gotcha. And for yeah. more on that, check out one of our earlier episodes on home brewing. That's right. And the brewery moved around a little bit, and it was shut down in 1913. Um, when and that was a precursor to prohibition as a whole. Yeah, I don't remember. What year did Prohibition officially take place in the U.S.? I think 15. 15, yeah, yep. but um, 1915. Th- this county shut it down a little for faster. Yep, and it closed as a result, and then later it would it would become a dry goods warehouse, and unfortunately it burned. Yeah, it did. So it is no longer around. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have plans to maybe do an episode on Christ Weisgerber in the future because he was actually a really important figure in Lewiston's history. I- I'm just flickered thought here. I don't know if this is true. Was he mayor for a time? He was. And I think he's also responsible for setting up like the public school district um, in Lewiston and a bunch of other stuff. He's a famous guy around here. We'll have to we'll have to delve into him deeper because uh, like I said, I think he's a pretty interesting guy and pretty integral in the in the overall history of starting Lewiston. Yeah, and, you know, we had uh, Steve Branting in. We talked to him. as kind of a kind of a, a, a large theme, an overarching uh, big picture with Steve, um, kind of his life and his upbringing here in the Valley. And then we talked about a few of the firsts and the books that he've, he's written. But I think if he's willing to come back, and I, and I think he might be, We'd like to have him back every so often to do some of these deeper dives into these specific topics. You know, that would be super maybe fun. some of the things we bring up today, we'll we'll just go into more detail. And he's just a wealth of information, and um, so yeah, so we'll continue on with some of these these first. Uh, but yes, we'd love to do a deeper dive into Christ and um, a whole bunch of other the, of these other things. Uh, the next one is kind of in that same vein. We're just going from beer. To wine. So now we're in 1864, and we have the first. And remember, people, this is the firsts either in the area or the state, or I think a couple of these are even U.S. firsts and world firsts and world firsts. Yeah, I guess. Mm. Um, so 
This is the first grapes grown in the inland northwest was was all the way back in 1864. I know I was doing some reading, and a couple of these grape growers, um, they came here that early in the 60s, uh, you know, 1860s. But their their wineries may not have been established in the 70, 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, 1964, the first grapes grown. What was it? It was a Royal, Royal Muscatine Cuttings. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I have had any Royal Muscatine grapes, if, yeah. if they are still around. Can't say I'm a grapeman. I don't know much about grapes. Uh, viticulturalist? Viticulturalist. There's another one for actual wine. Maybe that's viticulture, and there's another one for grapes. I don't remember. <laughs> for um, more on that, check out our episodes with winemakers Coco and Carl Umaker and Mark Weisling. Weisling yeah, they knew Brayhouse. a lot. Yeah. They, they, we might have actually even talked about this, too. Yeah, we what, definitely did. I just can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> what I thought was super cool about this was it was the same year that the Napa Valley Wine Coalition or whatever right. was that established. That whole region was like established at that time. For its wine industry. Mm -hmm. So it paralleled that, which is pretty cool. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was was started by a guy that was a French native. His name was Robert Schleicher. I believe that's how you pronounce his name, right? Robert Schleicher? A lot of C's, a lot of H's, a lot of E-I's. There is. Uh, He arrived in Lewiston in 1872 after leaving the U.S. Army. And he worked for Hotel de France. Um, that was owned by a French, a French woman, and that's down in downtown Lewiston, kind of where like, um, Hotel Lewiston is. Hmm. We should actually cover that at some point too, because she was an interesting figure as well. Definitely. And then there was another guy, Louis Del Sol, and he came a little earlier too. Yeah. He built this big sort of like manor. It was a French chateau style, uh, house and and near there he he propagated all of his grapes he grew all these different uh, grapes on that were uh, irrigated by a small stream off of the clear water and yeah that's that's where the first grapes were grown which would then later uh, turn into one of the first wineries in Idaho too yeah and he won a ton of awards all over I think there was a World's Fair. St. Louis World's Fair of 1904. Yeah, and yeah. then a Buffalo American Expo of Wines and then something in Portland. Yeah, the Buffalo Pan American Exposition was in Portland. Er, yes. Oh. Yep. And then he was also awarded at the Lewis and Clark Exposition. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. And there's a quote in the Tribune where he says that in his opinion, this is Schleicher, in his opinion, this area that we live in is the best place in the U.S. to grow grapes. Yeah, and he said that there's no reason why it shouldn't be the most uh, profitable industry in this area. And I think, you know, there's plenty of folks, some that we've already talked to, that are trying to make that a reality. Well, shoot, Rivara, I think, just opened up, and that place looks beautiful. So, um I even hate to say, when all this dies over, or blows over, I'll go visit or whatever. I'll still maybe visit. I don't know. Wear a mask. <laughs> Wash your hands. I don't know. I'd like to go. Looks beautiful. It does look cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. COVID. Um, shoot. All right. So that was 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1881. This would be, this, 
What happens? Yeah, what happens? Do you know what happens? No, I have I the I have the sheet. You have the chronological order of the right of, there. Of dates. Uh, okay, it's the Gun Club. Oh, yeah. So Lewiston's Gun Club is Idaho's first, which is kind of cool. But it's also, I guess, the oldest continually running gun club in the U.S. as of its closing in 2008. Well, no. So it it okay. So the the location closed, but it kept going. Yeah. They just moved it around. Yeah. So it, it didn't have, like, a home. Yeah. Right. But it's still longest continuous running gun club in yeah. the U.S. Yeah, but the, the, like, club proper, it moved a few times. I, I can't remember the first location, but... Oh, the, the, any guesses on the first location? I think you would know the first location. Come on, I'll give you one guess. Oh, wait, was the first one near where the spear plant is? No, the, right one? the first one's Old Gun Club Road. Oh, right, right. Yeah, right. near on Lindsay, down there, Lindsay Creek. Yeah. yeah, and then it moved to Holbrook Island, which is, of course, underwater now. Yeah. And then it moved up to um, what was the longest running home of it, I believe, which is up by the airport. Right. And it, uh, you know, it was all about trap shooting. Um, Clay I think, pigeons had just be kind of become a deal. Yeah, that's right. I think 1880 was the in the year of the invention of the clay pigeon. So 81, that was the year that this thing was created. So pretty yeah. cool. And at that their peak, parallel. I think they had over 300 members. Right, which is pretty pretty sizable considering our town isn't and hasn't always been a very big place. Yeah. So that's cool. But, uh, yeah, I feel like that's in true Idaho style, true Lewiston style to have the... <laughs> The oldest continually running gun club uh, in the U.S. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of a, a neat little piece of our town. You know, everybody is a gun owner and everybody loves uh, shooting their shotguns. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I can't disagree with you. I mean, that's just, it's, uh, yeah. Yep. It fits. I think one of the first uh, gifts I was given in life was a... Remington Wingmaster. What were you, one? I think I was, like, born. <laughs> I think the gun was purchased before I was alive. All right, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I also received uh, two guns as gifts growing up. I got a twenty-two bolt action and a, and a Winfield thirty thirty lever action, which is pretty yeah. sweet. So yeah. guns are, uh, they're just part of it. They're yep. just part of it. And, yep. uh... That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> What's the next Idaho first? Moving Lewiston on. Lewiston first, rather. The Lewiston first, this one was actually kind of one of my favorites. And when I heard it, I was like, there's no way. This is the coolest thing ever. Because not only was it the Lewiston have a female physician, but it was Idaho's first black female Physician, and I'm like, this is crazy because this was 1898, and I'm like, why, why haven't I just heard about this my whole life? You know, mm. why am I just learning about this now? And it turns out that although she was, um, I, you know, in the what, what I read, <laughs> mixed race is what was written down. Right. Um, she's, she's of ambiguous uh, sort of. Uh, 
Passing as white is putting it lightly. Yes. Yeah. She she looks basically like a white woman. Yeah. But she identified as African American. She admitted in a survey, um, which was brave of her at the time, that she was. African- yeah. She admitted that she was. Yeah. I think the the actual box that she checked was mixed race. Yeah. She she identified as African American and of uh, a mixed background. It says. Yes. So not yeah. not as cool as a, as a as a full on dark skin toned woman becoming a physician right that would have just blown my mind still very cool woman physician had mixed uh a family and uh what's really neat is her grandma yeah and well we forget to mention her name her name is dr angelina or nina grimke hamilton oh i'm sorry i did forget to mention her name uh she was born in 1872 and she was the granddaughter as brian mentioned earlier of angelina grimke weld who was a famed abolitionist writer and a woman's suffrage advocate. So that's kind of cool. That's where she gets her namesake. And she was only in Lewiston for a very short time. She moved here, as Brian said, in 1898, and I believe she left by 1900. Yeah, she left by 1900. Right. She moved uh, back home to Illinois uh, to help her dad, who had recently become widowed. And she worked in an insane asylum for a number of years. And after her passing, the Annex Building at Anna State Hospital in Anna, Illinois, was renamed in her honor. So, kind of cool. It's very cool. And, uh, yeah, I think it's it's fantastic. And an, uh, just like all of these, they're just really neat things that happened right in your backyard. That's right. Uh, that moves us to 1900, which this one was neat. The first woman delegate to a national convention. Right. So this is a U.S. first here, and I suppose you could also call it a world first. I Maybe yeah. not for a political thing, but I don't know any other Republican national conventions <laughs> um, anywhere else. No, it was a U.S. first. It's pretty sweet. I'm not going to forget her name this time because it was Susan Henderson West. Right. Yes. And Susan Henderson West, um, she played a really active role in Idaho politics, but as Brian mentioned, she was also a big part of the Republican National uh, Nominating Convention. So she was part of the RNC. She was helping to get uh, William McKinley reelected for his second term in 1900. Which is pretty cool. Um, you know, it's it's cool to see that Lewiston had national ramifications even back then. Well, yeah, and what's also really neat about this is it just goes with the theme of women in politics that we have, mm-hmm. right? Uh, one that we didn't cover because Branting covered it was that Idaho always had in its or Lewiston always had in its charter that women could run for office and stand for office. It was that school board? Um, election where two women, I think it was uh, Vulnerable's wife, Vulmer's wife, yep. and then um, some other woman, they both ran to be on the school board. Yeah, and women and were then, also able to vote at that time, too, for that particular election. Yeah, so anytime anyone tries to tell you that Idaho's behind the times, you can just be like, well, actually... At one point, we weren't. We were. <laughs> 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 I like it. Um... Yeah, it was really neat. So she she uh, she did another RNC stint. Yeah, 1904. But we didn't really see who that was for. Yeah. Um, but then she later on became a lawyer and served uh, as a clerk in the Idaho State or the Idaho Senate. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and she was also um, famous for being a great mom and wife, apparently, too. Yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Moving on. 1903. Do you have anything else to add on that? I don't. Okay. 1903, Idaho's first implementation. Oh, right. Yep. Of the eight-hour workday. Those lazy, those lazy, no good. It's what you think. But apparently before that, most people worked 14-hour days. Yeah. At a much lower rate of pay. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, these guys were going, and, and by these guys, I mean the Mason and Bricklayers Local Number 4 Union. Right. So these were, this was March 2nd, 1903. Um, they were the, the, uh, the, Building uh, union, they were going for 45 cents an hour. Which would be about $11 an hour today in today's equivalency. Mm-hmm. And going down uh, to an eight-hour, they said, hey, look, guys, listen, hey, I can only lay bricks for eight hours. I'm <laughs> calling in a day. Right. 12 to 14. You got to be kidding me. Right. And they finally settled on 250 per hour, or per day, per rather, day, which yeah. is $60. Um, an equivalency now. Um, but yeah, they, they'd been trying on this for a while. Other unions had also tried to strike up this deal, the Carpenters Union. Um, they weren't able to get it done, but thanks to local number four bricklayers and masons, right? They were, they were able to get that done. It's just weird to think about a time before there were any sort of restrictions on how much your employer could slave drive you. But, uh, Let's not be dramatic, but yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were working a lot longer and a lot harder than um, than they needed to. Honestly, yeah. I mean, uh, we could go off on a tangent on how much a person should actually have to work to enjoy their lives, um, or how much they should get paid to be able to survive and pay their bills. Yeah, that's another episode <laughs> for, uh, frankly, another podcast. <laughs> um, but let me give you a hint. Shouldn't have to work so much. All right, so... And be paid so little. And be paid so little. <laughs> um, that's neither here nor there, but do you know what is here? And now? Well, not now. It, it ended in 1976, but in 1936, Potlatch just wasn't taking trees and logs and turning them into paper and whatnot. What else did they turn them into? Sawdust and shavings and all this junk that they didn't have anything to do. It was just piling up. But they became some things that it was we all... like it was like magic. It was like abracadabra, presto log. Mm. Look at that. The first. This is the first. This is the U.S. first, right? World first. World first. So yeah. presto logs here. So potlatch engineer Robert Bowling. They took all this recycled sawdust and clippings, and they just used pressure. No glue. No bindings. No mm. fillers. Just squeezed them tight into these logs. It was the first compressed wood fuel. Yeah, I'm sure most people are familiar with these. They're those little logs that you can take camping if you're unable or too lazy to go get yourself some firewood, or maybe you just run out of wood and you're you've got a wood stove at home and you want to throw some in. They're those little tiny. I don't know what did you say. They're about a foot long and maybe six inches in diameter, something like that. Yeah, and they're usually like logs. rectangle cubes yep. or whatever. Yeah, they're those little guys. And, uh, yeah, they're invented to kind of 
sort of make another means of industry and and turn waste into something valuable. And they ran in mass production, I think, from 36 to 76. Yeah. Yeah, 1936 to 1976. And at the peak, they were putting out 1,500 tons of these a month. Yeah. Which is a lot. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was a kid, my grandma, she, she had a wood-burning fireplace, and she mm-hmm. always had those Presto logs. Well, and for Now a long, I understand why. Right. Well, and for a long time, they weren't just for, like, citizens to use. They were used in, like, commercial buildings and in production and that kind of thing. So that's why there were so many that were produced. Yeah. But, but she'd let me light them. Yeah, they're kind of fun. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, after 76, they started making it into another product, which everybody is familiar with, particle board. Yeah, and they'd use the just the shavings and stuff to heat their boilers. Yep, exactly. Cool. So that was 36, or 30, right? That was, yeah, 36 to 76. Yeah, 1936. Yeah. Um, this next one was quite interesting. A little bit of uh, World War II. So we're moving forward in time to 1945. Right. And what happens? Oh, what happened in 1940? I'm not, uh, hmm. I know something happened. What happens in Lewiston? Oh, oh, in Lewiston. Uh, okay, so it's World War II. There's a gentleman named Mark Streeter. Uh, so let's, let's, let's go a little bit back. Let's go to 1941 when Mark is captured by, I'm guessing, the Japanese uh, and, and put in, uh, he was a POW. Right, so he's a POW. He's captured. He comes back to Lewiston, and uh, you know the story's not super clear on this. This is actually one I wouldn't mind jumping in to the deep end with uh, with Steve Branting on. Uh, he could shed some light on this uh, because I'm going to try to make it uh, not as murky uh, as, as 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 it is. But um, anyway, after being a POW, he comes seemingly. back seemingly. And he worked for a Japanese propaganda paper and Radio Tokyo. Which he claims, I believe, in the book, it seems like he's claiming that he worked for those outfits under pressure from the Japanese government after he was in in his prisoner of war era to, uh, to propagate their, or to promote their propaganda. But he then claims to the U.S. that he was only doing it to, quote unquote, work from the inside. And take down the or the Japanese, but yeah, and this was a okay. So 1945 was it like September or something? I think it was in September. He was issued a he was sent out to be arrested because he was doing all this propaganda stuff for the Japanese. Right. Yeah, he was on the same arrest warrant with General Hideki Tojo and Admiral Shigetaro Shimada. Forgive me if I pronounce those incorrectly. Um, but yeah, he was basically arrested because he was working with the Japanese to sort of, like I said, promote their propaganda on the war. And uh, he was a traitor, it sounds like. But again, it's kind of unclear what, what was happening. Well, it makes it super unclear because they dropped the charges on him because he he did flip. He gave them info on the Japanese. Right. So I, I don't know. It just kind of sounds like he did what he did to get along how he could and... Um, well, and there's made still, some questionable decisions, and there's still twelve thousand pages um, about his case in the National Archives that you can go check out. Just yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. But he moved back to Lewiston. Um, it sounds like he was a socialist and promoted socialist ideas here in the valley after moving back in the fifties. Oh yeah, he wanted yeah. everyone to be paid the same, basically. Yeah, like a universal income. 
unskilled, skilled, semi-skilled workers. They would all get paid relatively the same. That was kind of his deal. But it never pointed to anything about him being an out-and-out socialist, but that's what it sounds like to this podcaster. Yeah, we're just going to take a stab at it. I mean, in the 1950s, you don't really want to go around calling yourself a socialist. No, not by that point. No, or communist, which, I don't know, it kind of sounds like that was kind of up his alley, too, so wouldn't be surprised. Um, Yeah. So that was 45. Now we're moving to... 1973 for our last one, and is it my favorite... No, but I do like it. I like this one. It's one of my faves, too. It's one of my favorites. Um, this is actually an issue that we're probably looking at in modern times. Hopefully we're looking at it. I think we're looking at it. And what we're <laughs> looking at is called dam removal. So this was a, there was a dam. In 1927, it was built in the Clearwater uh, to supply 10 megawatts of power to a sawmill. It was 1,060 feet was that long? I'm guessing that's long. I'm guessing long long as well, yeah. High? I don't know. And it was big dam. That would be very, 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 very high. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to make any Washington jokes right now. <laughs> uh, 1927s went up uh, when it went up, and it, it it didn't have good fish ladders. I don't know if the technology wasn't great at the time or I'm it sure wasn't I'm sure they didn't give implemented. a rip about fish ladders back then. No, probably not. Um, so the Chinook almost went out. Right. Yeah, and that was a really big problem uh, because obviously we like fish. We yeah. like the chinook. We like the salmon. We like them to get up to the streams and do their deal and make more salmon. And and also in accordance with the uh, Nez Perce people, we are supposed to maintain those populations forever. We're supposed to be able to have them available forever so that they continue their culture and their traditions. Right. Well, but, we always live up to our word when it exactly. comes to uh, <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we're often really good at that as a country, as uh, just stepping on treaties. Yeah. Like our township. But in any case, I do love it here. So we're, yeah, just real quick, I am going to bash a little bit, right, like we just did. But don't get us wrong. Still love being here. Love the area. Love the fish. Don't like that they weren't able to get up. In 1973, go on. They blew it up, right? Yeah, they take it down. But it's the first, it, what it is, is the first removal in the United States of a federal licensed dam to restore a stretch of free-flowing river. Yeah, and I keep forgetting to say these are firsts. This this Mark Streeter guy that we just talked about was the first guy to get arrested in Idaho or the U.S.? I can't remember. U.S. U.S. for working with the Japanese. This dam was the first federal dam. What did you say? It was the first uh, removal in the United States of a federally licensed dam to restore a stretch of free-flowing river. Yeah. Yeah. So, Pretty you know crazy. what, Lewiston squatters breaking the treaty, but Idaho, where was it again? It was in Clearwater. Yeah. And then, you know, we got us tearing down dams and restoring fish populations. Yep. So, good. Pretty cool. Yeah. And hopefully we consider those things moving forward. Right. Yeah. But anyway, I don't know. It was fun to kind of check some of these out. Um, we hope you get a lot out of that or at least something. Uh, we had fun checking it out. Well, we, I mean, I know I learned something. Yeah. Yeah. And we hope to have Steve Branting back on again to, to uh, talk about it in a more educated manner as he has researched it. And we have not. We've just sort of read some of our favorites again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was good. It was good. And so the well, now what we'll do um, on this this cash casual episode of old spiral podcast is right now 
we'd usually take a commercial break, but why don't we just say thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks, everybody. Right here. Thanks to Patreon subscribers. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you want to donate to the show, go to uh, patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I was thinking about it. We should set up a one-time donation spot so someone doesn't have to donate every month, but if they wanted to give a one-time thing, Great they idea. totally can. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else would I like to say to everybody? Um, man... It's getting hot. It really is. It's getting hot. We're getting the the classic Lewiston Clarkston summers here. Mm-hmm. Uh, find a good piece of beach. Find a good pool. Stay off my rivers so I can fish in peace, please. Or don't, I guess. It's up to you. <laughs> You're all public land donors as well. But uh, get the hell away from where I'm trying to fish, please. I guess, yeah. Drew doesn't like you uh, in his fishing spots. Nope. So um, I I've been doing some fishing. I caught I, w- I was up at Priest Lake all last week. Yeah, how was a little that? Uh, brag there? It was gorgeous. I got the binoculars out. I looked at Neowise the comet. Mm. I did some stargazing. It's fun to see how the constellations change just a few hours up the road. Mm-hmm. And the different stars you can see up there than you can see down here. Uh, but I caught some kokanee and some mackinaw, otherwise known as lake trout. Mm-hmm. We had a fish fry. It was delicious. Um, the whole family was there. Uh, beautiful. I love doing that. I love, uh, I've been going out to door shack and catching kokanee. Mm-hmm. I got to do some kokanee fishing at Priest Lake. Um, that's what, you know, so Drew's into the, into the fly fishing. I, I also would like to go fly fishing, but I, I, I do some fishing too. A lot of camping. I've got a trip planned uh, early August to go jet boating up past Riggins. Cool. Uh, which is fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. the, you go through rapids. The guy we're going with is a guide, so he's, he's, he'll sit back on top of his chair and, and steer with his feet. Like, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's something else. It's pretty fun. Don't try that at home. Um, but here we go. I'm going to try a little bit of listener engagement. You know what I would love? I would love for you to go to the Old Spiral Podcast Facebook page and let us know what you like doing during the summer. Maybe I'll make a little post that says, what do you like to do during the summer? Well, and particularly, what do you like to do in the valley in the summer? Exactly. I know I mentioned Priest Lake and Dorshack, but I also um, I'm going with a buddy on Wednesday down to one of the Asotan beaches with our kids, and we're going to just splash in the water and hang out in the sun for a little bit. Yeah. What do you like to do in the summer? Uh, I'm going to make a post when this episode comes out on the 28th, which is Tuesday. And then um, I think if you comment, well, we, maybe we'll read it on the episode. Yeah, that's a good idea. Cool. So, yeah, let us know what you're up to uh, this summer, what you like to do, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give you a little shout-out in the episode, maybe a little first name, maybe. I don't know if we'll we, – we won't give your whole name, but. Yeah, and we'll uh... – We'll hopefully get some more interviews stringed up here and uh, keep the ball moving on this whole Lewiston Celebration podcast we got going that is the Old Spiral Podcast. Lewiston, Clarkston Valley. Yeah. We've got some fun stuff coming up for you um, that are not interview-based. We've got some fun ideas. and uh, We've got a project we've been working on for a while that that we'll release that I think will be really fun and really cool. I'm excited about it for sure. Yeah. All right. Scout, you got anything else? I love the, catching the balls in the water, and I and I and I love I love people, and I'm a golden retriever. You heard it, folks. Yeah, that's it. I don't know if that's okay. All right, everybody, have a good week. Uh, we will see you very soon. 
Thanks, everyone. This episode of the show is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to all of you for supporting the show. If you would like to become a Patreon subscriber, head over to patreon.com slash oldspiralpodcast. 
That's going to do it for this week, but the shows are not over. Get caught up on the backlog of episodes if you haven't already, and thanks for listening. Thank you.